Good morning, everyone. In this uh, liquid sunshine kind of day. So I uh, appreciate you having me, uh, inviting me here today uh, to bring you God's Word. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. And it's probably a somewhat an unusual passage, um, but given that it was the love candle that was lit this morning uh, for Advent, I believe that this passage is appropriate in this situation. So give a little background on Romans just for um, history's sake. Romans, of course, written by the Apostle Paul sometime around A.D. 56, which had probably been about the end of his third missionary journey. And uh, evidence from the text itself indicates that he was probably in the city of Corinth when he wrote it. Now, Paul had long wanted to visit Rome. It's evident from the text itself that uh, he had been prevented from doing so, according to chapter 1, verse 13. But it was God's providence and his sovereignty that he was unable to go to Rome when he wanted to. And because of that, we have this masterpiece of gospel doctrine. We know from the book of Acts that Paul does eventually make his way to Rome, probably not under the circumstances that he would have liked to, and certainly not under the circumstances he was probably thinking about as he wrote the letter. John MacArthur writes, Paul's primary purpose in writing Romans was to teach the great truths of the gospel of grace to believers who had never received apostolic instruction. The letter also introduced him to a church where he was personally unknown, but hoped to visit soon for several important reasons. He wanted to edify the believers according to chapter 1 verse 11. He, he desired to preach the gospel according to chapter 1 verse 15. He wanted to get to know them so he, that he could encourage them. So they could better pray for him so that they could encourage him and also help him with his planned ministry to Spain. The Christians are in Rome because they've been pushed out of Jerusalem during the, uh, under the persecution that came about following um, Jesus' death and resurrection. Of course, the Christians were being persecuted. We know Paul was one of them. And this began to spread the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth, eventually even into Rome where a city or a church was created. So since Romans is primarily a work of doctrine, there, there's not a lot of historical background in it. He does tell us, uh, makes reference to a few uh, Old Testament characters such as Abraham and David and Adam and Sarah. Rebecca and Jacob and Esau and Pharaoh, but he uses them as illustrations. Doesn't give us a whole lot of background on them. And he does tell us a portion of Israel's history in chapters 9 through 11. And in chapter 16, he gives us a glimpse into the nature and the character of what this first century church and its members looked like. So when we look at it, from a 30,000 foot view, we see an overarching theme of righteousness 
found throughout the book. That righteousness comes from God. It's a glorious truth that God justifies the guilty, and we'll talk more about that shortly. Condemned sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, are saved through Christ alone. Chapters 1 through 11 give us theological truths of that doctrine, and in chapters 12 through 16 are more of a practical outworking of how that should be reflected in our lives. Chapter 5 in particular is a challenging chapter. I've heard it said uh, somewhere, I, I don't recall where it was, but it said that Romans chapter 5 had caused many a theologian to drown. There is um, much that can be dwelt on here. Um, and I can certainly see how they draw that conclusion. But as you look at chapter 5, it opens with the word, Therefore. And as a general rule, when you see that, you need to ask yourself, what's it there for? And it indicates that it's what follows is related in some manner to what preceded it. And our passage is just that today. The passage actually begins in chapter 3, verse 21, and continues all the way through the end of chapter 5. So we're just going to look at a, a small portion of this here um, in the middle. In this large section, we find faith being the central focus. Chapter 4 describes for us the faith of Abraham in particular. But now let's look at Romans chapter 5. Our primary focus is going to be on verses 6 through 11. And I'm going to open by reading 1 through 5 and then give a, say a few things about those verses. But then we'll get into 6 through 11. So beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into His grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just come to you this morning. We thank you for your holy word. We thank you for the truth that it contains. I pray this morning that you'll open our hearts and our minds to understand uh, the words that you've given us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So just as Abraham was justified by faith, so too are we. Our justification comes as a result of our faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. John MacArthur describes justification as a one-time legal declaration with continuing results, not an ongoing process. It's not something we get more justified as we live our lives, but rather we, uh, we're justified once, we're sanctified throughout the rest of our lives, but justification happens at the moment of salvation. Justification brings with it several benefits according to these verses. First, we have peace with God. That's wonderful in and of itself. We have peace with God. 
It brings the grace that we're able to stand in. We should rejoice. We have the hope of the glory of God. We have the hope that we will see His glory because we have been justified. But we also should be able to just be able to rejoice in our sufferings. That's a little more difficult to do. But notice the, the, the implications of those sufferings. It produces endurance, which brings about character, and character brings about hope. So even in those sufferings, we benefit. Finally, we see that God's love is poured out to us through the Holy Spirit. And of course, all believers are indwelt with the Holy Spirit at their conversion. So verses 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the, faith of it, by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Look there again at verse 8. Verse 8 says, But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Think about it. Just, just let that sink in for a moment. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's three primary points I want to give you this morning. The first is pretty obvious. God loved us while we were still sinners. Come straight from the text. It's an obvious point. Nothing, no wells we need to, to get to the bottom of to, to find that uh, anything hidden there. It means what it says. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's you, that's me. We're all sinners. And yet God loved His Son enough to send Him to die for us. John 3, 16. We can all quote it. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. So not only did He send Christ to die for us as sinners, the text also tells us it, He did so while we were still weak. We're too weak to save ourselves. If it were even possible, we're too weak to do it. We're too weak to keep all of the law. But Christ wasn't. Notice also the text says Christ was sent at the right time. Now thinking about time is one of those topics that just makes my head hurt. And I won't get into to the, the detail of why that's the case. As my wife will tell you, it don't take much to make my head hurt. But try to think about it at some point. What time is and how it's, um, what it means. From our perspective, everything has a beginning and an end, doesn't it? But God is eternal. There was never a time when God did not exist. 
And there will never be a time when He will not exist. God knows the beginning from the end. And in Revelation, He refers to Himself as the first and the last. Revelation 1.8, He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. Alpha and Omega, those are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. Who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. God covers all the bases, who was, who is, and who is to come. Revelation 1, verse 17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Now, it's my belief that the earth is some 6,000 years old, everything that it contains. That would make me a young earth creationist. And I know there's a variety of opinions. I've, I've had to study them. And um, that's one of those things that I can, somebody can ask me, so what do you believe? I said, well, this is what I believe. You tell me what you believe and I can argue it for you. I know those other arguments. But nevertheless, I believe the earth's about 6,000 years old. For whatever reason, and God had a reason, he allowed roughly 4,000 years to pass before He sent Christ to die for sinners. And that was the right time. That was the perfect time for Him to be sent. Why did He wait so long? We don't know. But it was the right time. Adam and Eve needed Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection to save them just as much as we do. But yet 4,000 years had to pass for the right time to arrive. Jesus did not come early. He did not come late. It was the right time. There's a southern gospel song by Gold City, the title of which is In Time, On Time, Every Time. Listen to the words of the chorus. God was in time for the children of Israel to cross the mighty Red Sea. He was on time when the walls of Jericho fell at Joshua's feet. Every time I feel discouraged, don't have to wonder where he'll be. God's been in time, on time, every time for me. Can you say that? Has he been there when you needed him? He has been for me. And he can be for you. Not only did God love us while we were still sinners, but point number two, Christ died for us while we were still sinners. Again, verse 8, but God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And it's not an unusual, it's not unusual in an evangel uh, evangelistic encounter to hear someone say something along the lines of, well, you don't know what I've done. Uh, I've sinned too much to be saved. But Romans 5, 8 is an excellent reminder, uh, a passage to remember to answer those folks. Ask the question, the simple question, how many sins had you committed when Christ died on the cross? Now I know some pretty old folks, but none of them were around when Christ died. We personally, all of us here, none of us had committed any sins when Christ hung on the cross in our place. 
Yet He did hang on that cross and He bore those sins. If you're a believer, your justification makes you innocent in God's eyes of everything you have done, everything you are doing, and everything you will do. Say it another way. Your justification makes you innocent before God of every sin you have committed, every sin you are committing, and every sin you will commit. And we're not getting out of this, this world without committing them. We're all sinners, but we can be saved. Our faith is in Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection because it dealt with those. If that doesn't show God's love for us, I'm not quite sure what does or what could. I'm sure many of you remember the old American Express commercials where they said membership has its privileges. The same can be said for our justification brought about through the shed blood of Christ. Justification does have its privileges. That's point number three. We know our salvation has many privileges. The things that it gives us, the access it gives us, the, it, it, even if we only consider the idea that we're not going to hell is a privilege that we have. But verses 9 through 11 gives us three that we need to consider. Look again at those verses. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we should rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So quickly, we're saved from the wrath of God. We're reconciled to God. And we rejoice in God. Throughout Scripture, we see examples of God's wrath that have been poured out. We think about Sodom and Gomorrah uh, and the destruction that was brought about by the hellfire and brimstone. It's, there, it's interesting if you look on a map, um, any map, most of them will give you a um, location for Sodom and Gomorrah. But um, it's only a, a guess. It's a speculation based on where everything else they know where it was located. I read at one point uh, that these archaeologists had been looking and looking and looking and trying to find, all right, where was the city, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? And of course, you know, you, you see these archaeological things. They, they dig down, they dig through sand for 30 feet, and they, they start finding foundations of buildings. But they have dug, and they have dug, and they have dug, and there is no evidence, no physical evidence that the cities ever existed. 
The evidence we have is the historical evidence in the Bible. And we know why there's no evidence to be found, because God destroyed it. But that's just one example. We mentioned there a moment ago about the crossing of the Red Sea. God pushed Israel up against the Red Sea. The water in front of them, the army behind them. What's, he going, what's going to happen next? He parts the water. The Israelites are able to walk through on dry ground. Don't miss that part, dry ground. But have you ever noticed that when the, the um, Egyptians come through, he talks about the wheels being gummed up in the mud. And of course, he brings the water back over them. But we see God's wrath poured out over the centuries. Just as being saved from the wrath that is come that is to come is reason enough to rejoice in the Lord. We're also right back to the, we are also placed back into a right relationship with God. R.C. Sproul writes, Yet there is a past, a present, and a future aspect to the work of God on our behalf. Therefore, our rejoicing is for what God has done, is doing, and will yet accomplish for us. Think about that. We need to rejoice for what God has done, even as far back as the Old Testament. It all leads us to where we are today. We need to rejoice for what He has done. I don't think we have issues when we see God moving in our lives, giving, uh, rejoicing in that. But yet we also need to rejoice in what He will accomplish for us, for us personally, for us as believers. There's a time coming when he's, He will send His Son back to get us. But we need to rejoice in what is to come. Sproul continues, but at this point Paul encourages us to rejoice not only in the work of God, but more so in the person of God. Praise and adoration are appropriate. For who God is in His being, His wisdom, power, grace, love, and so on. Even if we never knew or experienced the work of God on our behalf, praise for Him would still be our appropriate response. He is worthy of praise in and of Himself, whether He did anything for us or not. He is worthy to be praised. The fellowship of man and God was broken in the Garden of Eden, but it was mended on the hill of Golgotha. What was divided by one man was brought back, was restored by another. The last, uh, the, the last verses of Romans chapter 5 um, give us a, a glimpse of that. It says, therefore, this is beginning in verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, to reference to Adam, the many were made sinners, that would be us, 
So by the one man's obedience, Jesus, the many, will be made righteous. Again, a reference to us. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. The purpose of the law was to show us that we were sinners. Just in case we didn't know, it was to show us that we were sinners. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. These are those verses that the theologians drowned in. These are these verses that raise those questions in, the, in their minds of well, what exactly does this mean? And I think sometimes these um, academic scholars look for the, uh, uh, a much deeper meaning than the simple one that's on the surface. Our relationship with Christ was broken by the sin committed by Adam and Eve in the garden. But Christ's death, burial, and resurrection restored that relationship, restored the ability for us to have a relationship with God. I want to wrap up with a, just a short snippet from the great monologue from S.M. Lockridge. You've probably heard it. That's my king, do you know him, is the title of it. It was a, it was a full sermon. If you've never heard the, uh, actually the, what you see, what you find on the internet, YouTube, um, or you can find the text of it, it's actually just a snippet out of a full sermon that was, he preached um, on a Sunday morning. He was, uh, he was a pastor in the L.A. area. But it is uh, incredible when you think about all that is contained in all that he says. Just a portion of it, he says, well, my king is the king. Think about these, these statements with me. He is the key to knowledge. What do we know without God? Very little, do we? He is the wellspring of wisdom. We can only have wisdom through Him. He's the doorway of deliverance. Think of John chapter 10 where Jesus is the gate. He's the pathway of peace. You know, we see on the news all that's going on in the Middle East right now. All those who are at war, those who... Um, wouldn't take much for them to be involved in war. And we certainly need to pray for the peace in that region. But there is a day coming when there will be peace in the Middle East. It'll be when Jesus' feet hit the ground on the Mount of Olives and it splits as described in the book of Zechariah. He is the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. And He's the gateway of of glory. The simple fact that God would go to all this trouble, as we would say it, to save man should make us even more thankful that He saved you and me. 
Oh, it's incredible to think there's, I can't remember the exact passage off the top of my head, but there's a passage that when you read it, you realize that God sending His Son to save us from our sins, He would have done for one. Had there been just one where that relationship was broken, He would have sent His Son to die for them. We're the pinnacle of God's creation. He wants us to be in a relationship with Him. The question that ends most of the sections of Dr. Lockridge's uh, message, he asks, do you know Him? And that's my question for you this morning. Do you know Him? If you don't, then don't let another day pass without placing your faith and trust in Him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank You for the truth of Your Word. I thank You for Your willingness to send Your Son to die on a cross, to die a horrendous death in our place, a death that we should have received a penalty that we should have received for the sins that we commit and have committed and will commit. But Lord, you loved us enough that you sent your son to die for us. And I praise you for that this morning. If there's any who don't know you today, I pray that they will take care of that, that they will meet with someone, that they will talk with someone about it, Lord, and that they will make their life right with you even this day. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.